Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. For a long time, she hated her parents for putting her in this situation, like that she was in the military barracks to escape from the LRA. Until she realized that her parents actually did this out of love because they knew that that would be the only safe place for her where she would not be killed. So when she found out that she was HIV positive, she really thought it would be the end of her life. But then she had like three kids, you know, to take care of. And she thought by herself, like, if I don't take care of them, what's going to happen with them? You know, who, who takes care of them? No one. So she knew she had to survive. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. My guest today is Stella Airoldi. She is the founder of 22 Stars Jewelry, a product-based business model which empowers local Ugandan artisans to rise above poverty. She is also the founder of the 22 Stars Foundation, a donation-based model which carries out social development programs in Uganda on a larger scale. She also runs social impact workations for location-independent entrepreneurs and changemakers to experience Uganda through fun and adventurous activities and to participate in the 22 Stars projects firsthand and learn how to empower people on the ground with dignity and respect through skill sharing. Her jewelry designs are inspired by her nomadic travels around the world, and in particular, her adventures in more than 20 African countries. Stella holds a dual master's degree in international law and human rights and democracy. She has been a digital nomad for over eight years, having spent time in over 60 countries. Born in Germany and raised mostly in the Netherlands, Stella speaks fluent German, Dutch, and English, her third language, in which we'll be conducting this interview today. Stella, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. It's like a pleasure to be here today and be on your show. Well, I am super excited to have you here. And we should just set the scene for people at the moment. We are doing this interview in Barcelona, and we have a bottle of wine already open on the table. And this is a Catalonian wine from this particular region. It was interesting. I went to the wine store today, of which there are many here in Barcelona. And I was looking around, I was looking in the Rioja section because the Rioja wine region of Spain is a region that I've spent time in. I did a wine tour there earlier this year. 
And I was asking the woman to recommend a wine to me, and she steered me away from that section and towards this particular Catalan wine. So this is actually my first time having this, but so far, so good. What do you think? It's a really nice wine. I mean, I already have like half the glass finished, so... Awesome. Well, we'll be drinking through this bottle during the course of the interview. And we are actually here in Barcelona together as part of the home base global work travel program. And we're both about to embark on the Nomad Cruise. Next week, we're going to go from Barcelona on a transatlantic cruise to Brazil. And this, I know, is your seventh Nomad Cruise. They have done seven so far. Number six, the previous one was my first time going on the Nomad Cruise, and I'm going on this one as well. You, however, I understand, are the veteran of all veterans. You have been on all seven Nomad Cruises since it began. Yes, so on all six, and I'm going on my seventh, and I've been on all of them. That's true. So let's talk a little bit maybe about that to start, and then I want to get into your story. But In terms of the Nomad Cruise, as an example, they do about two per year. So why do you come back and make it a priority to go on both Nomad Cruises per year? And maybe you could talk a little bit about how you structure your year and your integration into the Nomad social ecosystem. So I go to the Nomad Cruise for several reasons. I would say the foremost one is that it's just like yeah, an amazing experience. I literally go there for my friends that I met like throughout the last years and who also come back. So for me, like that's like number one priority that I really have fun over there. I feel happy, relaxed, just everything comes together. The second one is that also for my own social business foundation and vocation, it has been very beneficial to connect with the other people, brainstorm, exchange ideas. It has been like, yeah, super inspiring, basically work together with other people who are also extremely smart in what they do. Yeah, it's really impressive. And just to contextualize for people, the Nomad Cruise is basically a business conference on a boat with location-independent entrepreneurs. And we come together and do presentations, workshops, talks, and interactive mastermind sessions and everything else on issues ranging from building businesses to my presentation on the last Nomad Cruise was about minimalist packing and how to travel the world with carry-on luggage only, right? And there was another presentation on how to, you know, hack basically frequent flyer miles and do that sort of stuff. So it's everything from travel hacks to business building, you know, to all sorts of personal development and other types of things. And so um, it's been really cool for me to see about the Nomad Cruise. One thing that stood out to me in the last one was the diversity internationally. So the last cruise had 250 people on it from 42 different countries, including countries like Uganda and Kenya and Nigeria and, you know, countries all over the world. It wasn't just Americans and, you know, some Europeans, right? So that for me stood out and was particularly cool. It's also cool for me to see how much it's growing because the last cruise, which was just, you know, six months ago, had 250 people. This one has 500 people on it. So to see how that is growing is really exciting. And it's really cool. And I agree. I mean, seeing a lot of the friends that I've made just on the last Nomad Cruise, again, is an amazing experience. But also to meet all the new people and to see it grow is really, really awesome. So let's start off a little bit. One of the things that I want to mention about you up front and allow you to speak to, particularly to this audience, is that you have decided that real estate investing 
is a primary strategy of yours. And you've actually been able to and chosen to buy rental properties and finance most of your international travel and lifestyle expenses with your rental income, which is amazing. And can you just speak a little bit about that at the beginning here in terms of why you chose real estate? You could have invested your money in anything. Why did you pick real estate and where is your real estate located? So it's actually my mom, like who's the big brain behind a lot of things. Unfortunately, when I was 19 years old, my stepfather, he passed away. And then me and my mom, we inherited some things. And my mom was actually like, yeah, the smartest, I would say, of our family, who immediately said like, yeah, like you should never have money only sitting on a bank doing nothing or just invest in only like one country or one thing. So then she actually together, yeah, with me, bought like apartments in Italy and in Germany. And I also already had like a house basically in the Netherlands, which I inherited. So to spread like risks, because if something goes down, then at least not immediately everything goes down. So it was actually like my mom, like who set it up. But um, in the beginning, I never really thought about it because of course, like it also costs a lot of money. It's not that you just like invest in something and you immediately get money out of it. So I, I kind of like completely let go of this whole idea also because of course my mother always told me that I should find like a stable job, have financial independence and security myself through finding a job. Yes, I of course like also agree with. However, at one point in my life, I just found out that I wanted to invest more time in my family. My parents I separated when I was a child, so I was in between several countries, traveling between my family members. Then I started to work for international institutions abroad. So I didn't see my mom anymore as often as I wanted to, neither my real dad. And then, yeah, I came back to the Netherlands at one point, a bit, yeah, lost what I should do. I also didn't like the way that international development was organized, but I will come back to that later. Yeah, and then at one point I... Actually, also by talking to other people and also like, yeah, my mom, like I actually realized that if I would just keep my own costs low and would just like, yeah, rent out the property, then I would have this passive income, which would at least enable me to really start my own business and take that risk. Because for a lot of people, it's like, yeah, very hard decision if you don't have enough savings or you don't have this soft background falling as I have to really take that step. So this step I took about four years ago and then I basically left the Netherlands and so far I've never returned back long-term. Like I'm there like in between because I'm officially still living over there. So I am there like in between my uh, traveling. Right. But you don't need to live near your properties. They're rented out and you're collecting the passive rental income, which finances your world travel and gives you that coverage of your living expenses so that you can experiment with different business endeavors and you can focus your work on charitable stuff and you can do all of those things and have the rental properties finance your lifestyle, which is totally amazing. And so let's talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and your connection with Uganda, which by the way, I just went to Uganda for the first time two months ago. And it was so amazing. I was so impressed. I was based, um, for the month, I was based in Nairobi in Kenya. And then I took uh, about a long weekend, went for like four nights, I think it was, to Kampala, Uganda, the capital, and stayed with a mutual friend of ours who I actually met on the last Nomad Cruise. Shout out to Brenda, who hosted me there. She's, you know, born and raised there. And so she said, you know, if you're going to be in Kenya, you have to come see Uganda. 
can't come to East Africa and not go to Uganda. I was like, fair enough. She's like, just come stay with me and, and I'll show you around. So I did. And it was just fantastic. I was so impressed. The nightlife was unbelievable. She would take me out to, you know, these different Ugandan clubs and just the, I mean, the music, the stuff the DJs were playing, which was, I would say probably about the clubs that we went to, the clubs that we went to were, you know, there's no cover charge. Most of them were open air clubs, but with DJs, amazing sound systems and just incredible music, most of which I had never heard because it's probably about 70% Afro beats, probably about half of which were Ugandan and half of which were from other places in Africa, mostly Nigeria. And then the other 30% was stuff that I had heard. It was, it was Caribbean reggae and American hip hop, probably a combination of those. So that's sort of the milieu of these night spots in Kampala that we went to. And people just go and they, I mean, the atmosphere was incredible. So I'm like shazamming like all these songs from the dance floor, you know, like trying to make my playlist of these Afro beats I've never heard before. So incredible. And so I had a blast with that. And then just going around Kampala, you know, it has the Baha'i Mother Temple for the entire continent of Africa is in Kampala, which is just a gorgeous, not just the temple, but the entire grounds. You can go and walk around and it's so just serene and peaceful and amazing. Has one of the largest mosques in all of Africa. I think it's now called the Ugandan National Mosque, formerly the Gaddafi Mosque, but it is certainly the largest one in East Africa. And then it has a Catholic basilica, which is a shrine to 22 martyrs who were immediately canonized and became Catholic saints. And that basilica has drawn three papal visits, including from Pope Francis in 2015, making Uganda the most, you know, the country in Africa with the most papal visits of any country, right? So like, you know, I was just going around and seeing all of these different things and it was just really spectacular. And then we went to the uh, Indire Cultural Center and saw the cultural performance, which was incredible to see how the different Ugandan cultural traditions from the different people around Uganda, the different kingdoms around Uganda, you know, passed down their traditions through performing arts, Right. And so these performances were just, I mean, mind blowingly spectacular. And so, you know, I was just totally blown away by, by Kampala. It was fantastic. Yeah. I, I love Kampala myself. And yeah, unfortunately, we just missed each other. You were just too late. You missed the Nyege Nyege Festival, which was amazing. I was myself hosting my social impact occasion at that time. And we also had about six, seven nomad cruisers at the vacation. And we had like an amazing time. And especially like, yeah, what you say, like this mix between electronic music and like the local traditional music, it's, it's insane. I had heard about that festival and Brenda actually put it on my radar and she's like, listen, if you can come for this festival, you should really come for it. And the reason I couldn't is because I had already scheduled a safari in Masai Mara in Kenya for that weekend. So it was the same time and it was not a changeable thing, right? So it was part of the program that I was on and we were doing that. So I wasn't able to get there for that. So we did just miss each other, but totally amazing. And then in addition to Kampala, I went out to Jinja and saw the source of the Nile River, which was really powerful because I had lived literally on the Nile River for like over a year of my life. I spent a year in Egypt and literally lived on the Nile River, right? Like most of the time I lived in, you know, literally right on the Nile. And so I have all of this, you know, experience and association with the Nile River, but 100% from the Egyptian 
you know, perspective. And so to see the source of the Nile, which irrigates 11 African countries, was a very cool thing. And then when you get there, you realize, which I didn't know before I went, that Mahatma Gandhi had his ashes scattered in multiple major rivers, including the Nile at the source in Uganda. So there's this huge Gandhi shrine there and like, you know, you know, Indian politicians come there to plant trees and pay homage. And it's this massive thing. I was just totally amazing. Yeah, the River Nile, we obviously have the Nile special, the Nile Gold, which is our like national beer in Uganda. And yeah, it definitely is connected to the Nile. Yeah, for sure. So totally impressed with Uganda. So let's maybe start with your story back at the very beginning. And I want to maybe start with your academic background and your choice to go in in this particular direction, because one of the things that you and I found out that we have in common is we both studied international conflict regions and that sort of stuff. You went with in, a, in an international human rights law direction. I have a master's degree in international peace and conflict resolution and have done activist work in a number of uh, political conflict regions as, as well. So we had that in common, but maybe talk a little bit about your journey and sort of your consciousness raising and that drove you to those academic interests from the beginning and how you became passionate about those issues. Yeah, a child, like I was like born in Germany and then with six years, I moved to the Netherlands because my parents uh, separated and my brother, he stayed in Germany. I stayed uh, with my mom in the Netherlands. So we also got separated. That's kind of like led a huge impact as a child. So I was always very much interested into children's rights. When I was a kid, my parents raised me like, okay, either you become a doctor or you become a banker or you become a lawyer. So I don't like to see blood. I didn't want to become a doctor. I'm not that good in maths and calculations, so thank you neither. So I chose to become like a lawyer then. And I started studying law and in particular children's rights, because that was where my passion was. Yeah, I found out that with Dutch law, I would be actually yeah restrained to work and live in the Netherlands. But since my family came from Germany and I also went often to Germany and my real father, he actually moved to Switzerland. So I was also spending a lot of time there. My mom is also half Italian. I grew up in this international field as a kid, traveled around a lot. And I kind of like got scared, like, oh my gosh, if I study really only the Dutch law system, I will be completely bound in the Netherlands. So at an early stage, I already was thinking of doing international law, but my English was so terribly bad. (laughs) Like, it's embarrassing. You can't even believe it right now if you heard me speaking. Like, even my law professors, they were looking at me and they were like, Stella, like, maybe you can study uh, strafrecht. You know, that's like criminal law in Dutch. But uh, international law, you know, that's, don't, don't talk anymore about it. You know, and they're really trying to like talk me into different directions. And I also did like criminology, like, it was like a side study next to law because I was also interested in the murder psychology part of the whole legal field. Yeah, <laughs> teachers, professors tried to like talk me out of this whole idea of international law, but I was quite stubborn and I was like, no, like, um, yeah, I want to give it a try. And then I came up with this idea to study abroad, but um, we already discussed it. I wanted to do a master degree at the scholarship which was a big cruise boat, similar to the Nomad cruise, but then 10 years ago. And this cruise ship 
was actually hosting about 500 students doing a bachelor's degree and a master's degree traveling around the world. And that just seemed amazing to me to be with a bunch of people on the cruise ship. We would dock every in every port for like a week, have field trips, just seemed like a dream come true. But it was 2008 and the crisis hit and they didn't got like enough sponsors anymore after they already did two trips. So this whole scholarship program got canceled and I had to come up with something else. So I decided to do legal English courses and volunteer work all around the world because I still got inspired from this cruise ship, you know, going to like not just one destination, but like several destinations. So I went to Southeast Asia, I went to Ecuador, Costa Rica, Los Angeles, Honolulu, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. And this was all like 2008, 2009. And while I was traveling, I got confronted a lot with poverty, like a lot of situations, uh, of course, in South Africa with the apartheid, but also in Australia with the Aboriginals, also in Honolulu, Ecuador. Yeah, maybe I just look for it. I don't know. But I always, yeah, was involved with those type of issues that also interested me a lot. So I decided to study international law and then focus particularly on human rights and children's law. So in 2009, I was studying this. And if you put together children's rights, international law, conflict countries, you quickly end up with child soldiers. And then I decided to write my thesis about girl, child, soldiers in particular. And that brought me in 2009 to Uganda. So can you talk a little bit about that and just maybe contextualize it for people that maybe aren't familiar with that political situation in Uganda in terms of the child soldier situation and the Lord's Resistance Army and what was going on there? Can you just sort of kind of paint that context and then, you know, what your you know, academic role was then when you engaged it? Yes, I will try to keep it short because otherwise it gets too long and you can private message me for the details or if you would like to read my thesis. The problem over there was that the Joseph Kony with the Lord of Assistance Army, they did not have any support. No one wanted to join the army voluntarily. So they had to start recruiting people. And many of those people were actually like young, vulnerable children. And it didn't matter like the gender they had, like boys, girls, they both got recruited. But the problem was that whenever peace resolutions were debated with them, only the boys would like set free, but not the girls. So that's where like my whole thesis topic was about. And later on with my second master, I also focused more on the child victims and witnesses participating at the International Criminal Court in Den Haag. So to see how the court actually did their interviews in Uganda and all of those things. That was around the time, right, that the ICC, the International Criminal Court issued their, I think it was like their first ever arrest warrants. I mean, talk a little bit about then, you know, from there, what your specific interest was and then your role was with the girl child soldiers and sort of the, you know, the, the survivors of that trauma and then their reintegration and all that kind of stuff and how you sort of connected with that. To kind of like give a bit more context, I wrote like two theses. So one was about the material law part. So what is not allowed to do? So obviously it's not allowed to enlist and recruit children into your army. That was my first thesis. And then my second one for my human rights master, which was like an advanced master from the European Union Inter University Center. That one 
was more deeper about procedural laws. So how the um, uh, child victims and witnesses are participating in this whole court rulings. So now, right now, like there are like procedures in place to protect the kids. So the International Criminal Court is like a mixture between common law and civil law, but they didn't really have like procedures in place that children should be in child-friendly rooms or that like a child should not uh, see the, the accused, uh, all of those things. And then also, for example, one organization would like interview the children, but then the other organization would also interview the children. So they caught like double traumatized and harmed because by accident they would say in one uh, interview that they were abducted for two months. In another interview, they might would have said four months and then, yeah, their testimony was not any more useful. Yeah, so I was like in Uganda to uh, research about this. And before I went to Uganda, I actually was super, super scared because the only idea I had about Uganda was yeah, that everyone is killing each other, that people walk around with chopped off noses and lips uh, because that's what happened in the Lord Resistance Army. And I had no idea that Uganda has nightlife and it's beautiful and it's amazing. I just had like those ideas from the research that I did. So I was super, super scared going the first time to Uganda. And in particular, also some background. When I went to Uganda, I did not have a smartphone. I did not have an iPhone or Huawei or whatever. I also didn't have like a MacBook, nothing like that. So when I went 10 years ago to Uganda, I would say it's quite different to the situation of volunteers who go right now to Uganda and who take selfies, Instagram stories and all of that the whole time. Like when I went, there was nothing like that. So I also did not post selfies, no pictures. Uh, just after my trip, when I finally had like good internet connection again back home, I made like a whole album of Uganda showing the whole picture, the safaris, the nightlife, the communities I visited, everything, which is super different from nowadays. So while I was in Uganda, I was volunteering at the AIDS Information Center and there I met a family, Bafula, and they were from Kampala. They were like Ugandans. And when I told them about the research that I was doing about the um, post-war victims from Northern Uganda, they said to me like, well, you know, Stella, you don't per se have to travel up north to Gulu, which I still did. You can also go to this uh, quarter in Kampala, which is called Asholi Quarters. There are a lot of internally displaced people living there. And yeah, they would be like the right people for you to talk to. And one of those people that I talked to was a woman called Susan Laker. She also joined the last cruise, the fifth one in the Mediterranean. So I spoke to her and she was only two years older than me. I was 23 at that time, 23, 24. So she was 25, 26. And she already has three teenage kids. So yeah, she got her first child when she was only 13. And I was quite shocked about it. But not just me, also the Wafula family was also shocked about it. Because, you know, it's not that whole Uganda used to be a war zone. Like there's peace since 2006 in northern Uganda, but there was already peace in Kampala for like a very longer time, you know. Like Kampala struggled with the Idi Amin regime in the 70s, but they did not have Joseph Kony. So also for Ugandans living in Kampala, the situation of a woman like Susan, who got kids at such a young, young age and had so many challenges in her life, was also quite extraordinary. So it was not just like me, you know, trying to help someone or looking what to do. It was especially also the Ugandan people themselves who also 
found people who they thought needed like an extra hand. So in this case, it was David and Ida Wafula who introduced me to Susan because they also were so touched by Susan's story and not just by her story, but also about her willpower to really help her kids to survive and also herself. So what was Susan's case was that Susan, um, yeah, got her first child with 13. Then she got like a miscarriage. She got another kid, another kid. For a long time, she hated her parents for putting her in this situation, like that she was in the military barracks to escape from the LRA. Until she realized that her parents actually did this out of love because they knew that that would be the only safe place for her where she would not be killed. So then at one point, she had two husbands. They both died. Because of the war, they were like soldiers in the rain. And then she found out that she was actually HIV positive about what she, she talks about like openly. So, um, yeah, she's not afraid at all to share her status with anyone, which is also quite inspiring. So when she found out that she was HIV positive, she really thought it would be the end of her life. But then she had like three kids, you know, to take care of. And she thought by herself, like, if I don't take care of them, what's going to happen with them? You know, who who takes care of them? No one. So she knew she had to survive. So she went to Kampala. Her sisters actually took her. Uh, Susan has a quite big family. And in Uganda, it's uh, super common that as family, you really stick together and help each other. So her sisters helped her to move to Kampala. And there she was working in the stone quarry to earn like literally a dollar a day only to provide her kids with food. But because her own health situation was so bad, at one point she was not even strong enough anymore to crush the stones herself. So she basically was sitting there looking at her kids doing the hard labor of carrying up the stones out of the quarry, crushing them. And she was just sitting there feeling like miserably and like crying because she had to look at her kids, not going to school, just surviving. And that was the moment that she realized that she had to become way more creative to earn a living. So she heard about like some projects making jewelry out of recycled paper. So she started to teach herself how to roll beads out of paper and vanish them and make like really nice jewelry designs. So that was like not too hard labor, like crushing stones. So she could like with her bad health situation, still like roll the paper beads, make the jewelry. And then she had to send her kids on the streets as well to sell the jewelry for her. And also she used to go a lot of times to the Gaddafi Mosque, like this nice national Uganda mosque you mentioned in the city center. And she would sit around that mosque together with her kids selling her jewelry. And this mosque is about two hours walk from Asholi quarters. So every day they had to walk over there. And she was sitting there. But Susan did not just make like the simple designs. She really made like outstanding designs because she really wanted to be better than the other people selling jewelry. So that was actually the moment that she got the attention of the family Wafula because uh, David and Ida Wafula, they were working at the AIDS information center where I was volunteering. And in our project, we also had like entrepreneur classes with the ladies. And one of the skills was to teach them how to make jewelry a lot of the customers started to become more demanding. And they said to David, like, don't you have like more interesting designs? We get tired of those simple jewelry beads. We want to have like, yeah, cool things. So that was the moment that David 
thought by himself like, oh yeah, I know that uh, there are ladies sitting around the Gaddafi mosque selling jewelry. So then David went over there to actually look at the market and see what the local women were making. And then he bumped into Susan with her three kids and he initially was like amazed by the designs that she made. But then of course he, he also heard her story and he was, yeah, completely overwhelmed and touched like the same as I was. So he immediately said like, I'm going to like regularly buy jewelry from you. And I also want you to come over to teach more women like the skills you have, you know, so to not just keep it for yourself, but really share your skills, make sure that other people learn and also like improve and get empowered. So that's what Susan did. And that's like how I met her. I started to buy jewelry from her, but just like on a private level, because I was sitting in the library writing my thesis for like a few years, not not few years. Like the first one was one year, then the second one, like another one year. So like two years, but I felt super useless. I was just sitting in a library writing, not helping anyone, you know? And uh, for me at that time, it really helped me to help someone because I had a feeling that I was not just writing empty words that no one would care about anyway, but that I really was doing something good. So I started to buy, yeah, Susan's jewelry. So that's, yeah, one part of the story. Then from there, how did your relationship with Susan develop? Because as you mentioned briefly in passing, and I just want to reiterate, you actually brought her on her first ever trip out of Uganda which was not only a trip out of Uganda, it was a trip onto the Nomad Cruise, which was going from Spain to Greece and stopping at the Balearic Islands and the Greek Islands and everything else and allowing her to sort of integrate and experience that entire thing. And so your relationship with her obviously uh, is incredibly close and meaningful to both of you. So can you talk a little bit about from there you know, once you made that initial connection with her, how did you develop, I guess, both your personal relationship, but then also the business relationship and how did 22 Stars get started? Initially, like when I met Susan, Susan did not speak English because like I already explained, like she grew up like in the war in Northern Uganda. So there was no way that she could go to school. So she didn't know how to speak English, nothing like that. But she knew like Luganda and Luo. Luo is the language from Northern Uganda and Luganda is the language from Kampala. So David and Ida, they knew how to speak Luganda as well, obviously, because they are from there. And they were basically my translators. So I could only speak to Susan using them as translators. So also when I left Uganda in 2009, the three years after, I just sent like a message to David and Ida asking them to help me out, to send me like more jewelry from Susan and uh, send her the money. And this was just like purely based on trust. You know, you just trust people. And I obviously thought like, okay, this could go wrong. I mean, maybe the money will never arrive at Susan's place. Like you, you don't know, or you do know, I guess like in your heart, I guess you do know. Like at least I would say I have a good intuition when it comes to people. So three years later in 2012, this was after I worked for the European Union delegation in China on human rights issues. I had a feeling that I really missed the field work to really work directly with people in the ground. And also, as I mentioned in the beginning, I wanted to see my family more often. But if you live this expat lifestyle or expat, I mean, what's an expat nowadays? <laughs> I could also be basically like called an immigrant, like living in a foreign country working. So I was like, yeah, working and living somewhere else in my home country. Didn't see my family and I was frustrated because I wanted to see my family more often. But I also wanted to 
work directly with people and not go through this whole bureaucracy stuff and waste money on so many things that, in my opinion, was a waste. So I was in between jobs. I went back home to see my dad, to see my mom. And then I was thinking like, yeah, I can apply for all types of jobs from the sofa of my mom, but I can also move my ass over to Uganda and just help Susan to set up like a jewelry online store and go from there. So I went back to Uganda, not thinking that it would be actually me setting this up. I just wanted to go there and... I knew that Susan was like illiterate. So it's not that I thought that she was going to set it up, but more like to help like, yeah, David and Ida to set it up basically. So I went back to Uganda, not knowing what to expect. So again, I was super, super scared to go back because I thought like, yeah, maybe everything would be wrong. But of course, I also somehow knew like, no, I don't think so. So I went back to Uganda in 2012, met again with David and with Ida and met with Susan. And to my big surprise, Susan actually talked English because she went back to school with the money that I sent. And she was also able to move to like a slightly better house. She's living in an area where people don't have electricity, neither running water, but where she used to live, it was literally like a house two by two meters or three by three meters, super small no real door, no windows, nothing. And thanks to the money, like she was able to move to like a bigger house. And then I saw this impact and I also could talk directly to Susan. I didn't need a translator anymore. So then she also said to me like, yeah, please, please help us to sell our jewelry like on a larger scale. So the idea was, I thought that I would just help them to set it up. But then I soon realized that it's impossible because from Uganda to send one bracelet or one necklace, it's too expensive. Like people need to ship a big quantity to, yeah, let's say the Netherlands. And then in the Netherlands, my shipping costs are lower. So if I have the whole stock in the Netherlands, then I'm able to, you know, to ship like one bracelet to you for two, three dollars. But you cannot ship only one bracelet out of Uganda. Like the shipping time would be too long. Yeah, you need a distribution center basically. Yeah, I would say like I'm like the bridge between Uganda and, and the Western world because also some of the designs, I really love them, but I also thought like they are more for summer and we are now in October, November. So we are looking more for like a Christmas collection and not for spring colors or yeah, like so she, she, Susan made already incredible designs, but I, I saw that I could tweak them a little bit you know, to make them even more suitable for the Western market and really bridge the designs with my own ideas of what would I love to wear in autumn, spring, summer, winter. And that was also like an eye-opener that I started realizing that Susan was like, Stella, what is winter? Or what is what, what do you mean, you know? So I was literally sitting there with my computer showing her pictures of, look, this is a tree in spring. This is how a tree looks like in winter. This is a tree in autumn. And it was education from both sides. Like she teached me a lot about what they need and how her community works. And I also showed her how our market works and what we like. So this was like 2012. So we started with the social jury project. I realized that in order to set up a business, I have to be back in the Netherlands because I also saw that I could not 
let them set up the business that we still needed like this bridging. So I went back to the Netherlands, set up this social jewelry business in 2013. I like the way that, that this particular story is unfolding because it's one of the things that I always talk to entrepreneurs about who are trying to start a business is to really start with the question of why and what the meaning is and are you really passionate about what you're doing and is it really having an impact in a meaningful way that's going to inspire you to work a lot and get up every morning and just love what you're doing every day. And if it's having a major impact, that's a really important thing. And so I really love the trajectory of your story in terms of you finding something that was so inspiring to you and a person that was so inspiring to you and then being able to plug into something and then design and build a business model that would really make a meaningful impact. But from there, and this actually is another thing that we have in common, and I want to ask you to speak to this, which is that our academic backgrounds are not in business, right? So like with me, you know, like I said, bachelor's degree in sociology, master's degree in international peace and conflict resolution. I was working in the nonprofit advocacy space for my entire professional career up until the age of 30. All of a sudden, one day, I unexpectedly get fired from my job. Now what? And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start my own business and I'm going to go the entrepreneurial route. And I'm going to not going to apply for another job. I'm going to chart my own path. and I'm going to do this. The only problem was I had no idea how to start a business because I had no business background. And so I had to literally make some strategic decisions to start going to the bookstore, reading books on how to start a business, figuring out, you know, what types of seminars I could do attend to go learn the things I needed to learn about building a business and doing this thing. So I had to do a very accelerated self teaching, you know, initiative to figure out how I was going to build my business and then go from there. But also, you know, same thing. We integrated a social impact component. We donate 10% of our net revenue to causes that are really important to us. So as the business does better, so do the causes we care about. And, you know, we created that whole why aspect at the very beginning as well, but we still needed to learn how to build the business and how to create it and grow it and make it actually successful and sustainable in the long term. So I would love to hear about how you approached that and figured out how do I do this? How do I run a business? What types of initiatives did you take to sort that out? And what were your next moves? I didn't read the books like you did. What I did was actually during my studies, International Law in Leiden, I became the board member of SAIF, Students in Free Enterprise. Nowadays, it's called Enactus. So in SAIF, like, we found out that the best way to help people out of poverty is by making sure that they become self-sustainable. So we had like various projects in Bolivia, Madagascar, but most importantly, also back home in the Netherlands, because of course, you don't have to cross borders in order to find poverty. So in my case, you know, it's not that I wanted to help people in Uganda and uh, not people like in the Netherlands. No, like I could also have found my passion project in the Netherlands. It was just because of my academic background, my thesis that I ended up in Uganda, but it could have been in, the, in my backyard, you know? So yeah, but there like you really learned that making people self-sustainable. So don't just throw three things at them. Don't just donate stuff to them. Let them have their own dignity and self-respect and let them do something that they can feel proud of themselves and that the children are proud and that they learn how also to move forward without you. It's not like yeah, a business learning, but it was more like a philosophy, I would say, that I already had in my mind. When I said like, yes, Susan, we are going to set up the social jewelry business. So I already had this background from Saif. 
And when I posted on my Facebook, like, yay, I just got my business registered. I obviously got like a lot of comments on my post. And one comment was from a friend who said to me like, hey, there is like an amazing program at the Rotterdam University, uh, Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the startup campus. And actually for like uh, causes like yours, who set up a business for a good cause, they give like a discount so um, you can participate. And yeah, you should give something back. And back in the days, I was one of the first people using Instagram and I had a huge Instagram account. And then I said, yeah, sure, like uh, I can share my Instagram skills, you know, with a few people and my experience of Uganda. And they were like, okay, perfect. You know, like you can participate in our program for a really reduced price. So I did this Erasmus course, which was like three months, where they teach me everything about testing your market. So I went every Sunday to the market in Amsterdam to sell my products, but not just to sell them to find information you know like a lot of my friends are making jokes because they all like became lawyers bankers doctors <laughs> you know all of those things that my parents hoped that I also would be one and they were sometimes really like mean some of them really mean they didn't understood it so they were like oh so now the child soldiers are producing bracelets and you sell them good for you and I was like uh no it's not the kids who make it like <laughs> it's not child labor but like a lot of people they don't even realize it and I think that even if I would have said to people like yes it's made by kids please buy it I think they even would you know because a lot of people are yeah, on a different level when it comes to to how products are made. Yeah, so they made fun. So they were like, oh, so now you're sitting on the market. Are you also screaming around like, buy two bracelets, only pay for one, you know? Like, they're really mean. And I was like, whatever, they just don't get it. But I'm doing things for myself. And I would say I have this attitude already since I'm a kid that I really do things for me and not for others. Because since I'm young, people never understood me, never got me probably because I had this childhood of having separated families, uh, separated from my brother. Also, my, my parents, they always did like really adventurous, crazy things that no one would understand. Yeah, like both of my parents, like my real uh, dad and my stepmom, they're hobby pilots. So my real dad flew in like a little airplane through Africa. My stepmom flew in a little plane from Europe to the States. So I would say, and then my mom, she moved, you know, to the Netherlands. My parents, they always have been quite adventurous, which was not the standard. So I always had a feeling I was misunderstood. And because of that, I just kind of let let go of it. I never thought like I need to explain myself to anyone. Like I just do whatever I want and I don't care that people don't understand me until I needed to sell products. Then I understood that people need to understand me because otherwise I can't sell. So I did this market research and um, I explained to my friends who were making fun of me that I was not on the market to sell jewelry to make money, but I was selling jewelry to understand what do the customers like? Is it too expensive? Is it too cheap? Do you understand the story? Uh, what designs do you like? So I did like all this market research. And then I had to report back to the startup campus about my findings. They really forced me to interview and film people and really, you know, do this research, which was super important because that also made me realize that I needed to really twist a lot of my designs a bit to really put more focus on the products. I mean, of course, the story is nice, but people buy out of pity one time your necklace. 
but then they will never come back unless your product is amazing. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I wanna offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. I agree with that 100%, and I think that is so important, right? That when people are designing a business and if it has a social impact component, which I hope that I advise all entrepreneurs that they should all have some kind of social impact aspect of their company, right? So that they're affecting positive change in the world with their business. And whether it's directly like their product is manufactured by artisans in Uganda like yours, or whether it's that they're just like my company, you know, donating, you know, 10% of their revenue towards really important causes that are affecting positive change, have some social impact component. But I agree with you 100% that you can't lead with your business offer being help you know, such and such cause by buying my product, because that's basically a charitable thing. And anybody can donate to charity. We can all contribute to whatever charities we want. If you want to have a viable business, your product itself needs to lead and needs to be desirable in and of itself. And your product, as you know, I just bought and I'm currently, as we're doing this interview, rocking one of your bracelets, your men's bracelets, which is really fantastic and fashionable. And, you know, I obviously want to support, you know, your business and your initiatives, but I was very impressed with how stylish and dynamic your product is. And that I think is what is really going to keep people, you know, buying these things again and again and again. So you can make a donation one time, but that's like your foundation, right? That's different from your business. Your business has got to have a product that people actually want to buy. And so I think the market research and figuring out what would you pay for, even if it had nothing to do with this charitable stuff at all, like what's desirable to you that you're going to keep buying, that is a really important aspect. Yeah, so I learned this at the market. What I also learned was, I mean, I did not learn that at that moment. Unfortunately, I learned that two years later. So I wish that I would have learned that or would have known that back then uh, was to outsource things and do invest. But because my environment was quite negative, except the people from the startup campus, they were like inspiring and positive. But you can imagine like my friends family, they all knew me like as uh, being career addicted. Like I had really high grades. I graduated cum laude. I have like two master degrees. So everyone was seeing me like as either a diplomat or a human rights lawyer or working for the United Nations, you know, like this high goals. And that's also what I used to have until I went to China in 2012 and 
I, yeah, changed my whole idea about life, family, career, everything. But yeah, my, my environment was still used to, let's say, the old Stella. And they were quite shocked and they thought that I, that I got crazy or that I was doing the wrong thing. And because of that, I literally had to do everything myself because I was too scared, you know, to outsource things and invest more money. Because according to everyone, I was crazy to set up a business with women who are illiterate and who are HIV positive and who could die. They were like, set up a solid business with people who are educated and, you know, make it like in China for half of the price. Obviously, our products are made in Uganda. They're handmade. So they're not like fabricated in a... In China, so obviously I know that my products are more expensive than if I would have made it like somewhere else. And of course, we don't just buy the products from the women. We also give back to them by taking care of their other needs. Yeah, so what I really would have wished back then would be to have more self-confidence and start outsourcing things. Because I would say the first year, I lost a lot of time by making my own flyers building my own website, doing just everything myself. And then, of course, like at one point, I also kind of like started running out of money or not like completely out of money, but like I was living like on a tight budget for myself. Yeah, I needed to find like um, a job that would pay me at least every month. And I also wanted to learn more about this whole crazy fashion world. So I was living in Amsterdam and then I started to work for Calvin Klein for the European web shop. And um, I was doing for them like the German, Dutch, English uh, language because, yeah, as Matt already said, like I'm um, yeah bilingual, trilingual, and I was taking care of like the German part. And the most important thing that I actually learned over there was customer service. I never ever realized that that's basically like the core of your business, like your whole reputation, just. Everything can be ruined in just like basically one day by sending out like a wrong email to someone, but you can also just build your whole business on customer service and on giving people like a great experience. And I would really say that that experience helped me a lot because I realized that, yeah, I always need to have very positive emails to my customers. If something was out of stock, I would always give them an alternative or send them like a free bracelet or whatever I did, because that's the other thing. The products are made in Uganda by women who live in a very challenging environment. So our products, now it's, it's getting very better, but especially in the beginning, they were not perfect. The colors could be slightly different the sizes could be slightly longer, slightly shorter. So I knew that I had to be very generous and very kind and very nice to my customers to keep them because they were used to the standards of everything is exactly like the product picture. And that's not the case with my products. But now it is because we really improved on our quality control a lot over the years. But in the beginning, it was a huge challenge. And uh, thanks to my experiences with Calvin Klein, I yeah learned how to deal with this. And did you, in addition to the customer service element of the business, which I agree with, by the way, 100%, right? I mean, people want to patronize businesses that are going to give them amazing customer service. And sometimes, as you said, you know, your supply side channels or your, you know, other variables that affect your business deliverables and that affect the customer experience, some of those are, you know, third-party variables that can be 
outside of your total control, right? And so the one thing that you do have control over is your customer service of your company and how you treat your clients and how quickly you respond to them and you know how supportive you are to them when something doesn't go right. And so I would agree with you 100%. I think that is a, a crucially important focus that you know we at Maverick Investor Group prioritize as our top priority as well in terms of the way that we deal with our customers, even if, you know, they have an issue with, you know, something or this is a supplier issue or something goes on, we always are trying to be there for them, responsive, supportive, and, and to do everything we can to help them to, you know, resolve whatever it is. But when you were with Calvin Klein and you were studying them from a fashion perspective, right, for your business purpose, did you did you have any additional besides the customer service element of the way they run their business? Did you have any fashion specific takeaways that you learned there? What I learned is that you really have to plan ahead, like at least nine months. First, you need to create your samples, then you create your photo shoot, then you're launching off your line. So it all takes a lot of time. And what I learned with them it was that yeah, you you have like different target groups. So you, for example, have like the people. Uh, who, are, who are like youngsters, so like more teenagers, young people, and they want to have more affordable products. So if you target them, you have like a different type of music playing in your advertisement. You also use a different type of language in your advertisement. You just really target your group. And that was really beautiful to see with Calvin Klein, who targets all those different type of groups because they also have this high-end label where people pay more money and they use different pictures, different language, different images. However, there's still one brand. So I realized that the brand 22 stars, I actually don't need to only have one specific target group. I can have like several groups within 22 stars. So I do target women. However, I also have a whole men's collection and I even produce jewelry for children. Of course, I target the moms in this case. But that was really interesting to see with them. Like, I don't need to only focus on one group. Like, as long as I make different lines and know how to market it, it's all possible. I love that. And as I said, I've already bought at least one of your men's bracelets. I'll probably buy at least one more from you on the Nomad Cruise. And then I already asked you about the women's line for gifts for women in my family. So super excited to see all those different lines. And I think that's a really, really good takeaway in terms of thinking about how you can expand and target different markets. So let's talk a little bit about the foundation and how that came about. So you established this business, you got it to this point, and then what started the foundation and tell us a little bit about what that does. I would say that with the social business, what I also realized is your uh, profits go up and down, up and down. So if your social programs are depending on uh, how much you're selling, it's quite vulnerable because you never know how much you're going to sell. So this actually brings me to something that I did not learn at Calvin Klein, but I learned from other social businesses. So the first years, I always had my winter collection, my summer collections, sometimes like a little spring autumn collection. And then at one point I stopped with that because that's actually the model that Calvin Klein has. Like they make sales, they are promoting Christmas, Black Friday. And and yeah, I learned from them what I do want to do, but I also learned from them what I don't want to do. So I stopped doing the winter collection, summer collection. I created like an endless summer collection because I love summer. People who know me, I, I follow the sun. But of course, like I, I didn't stop after the endless summer collection. I just have collections and they pop up 
any time in the year. So it's always a big surprise when I launch new products. You never know. And they're like durable. Like I thought at one point by myself, like, why should I put my things into sale and discount? Because actually it really affects our profit and our margin. And it affects my way to impact my community, you know, because if I start putting everything on 50% discount, it also means we have way less money to put into our social programs. So I completely stopped with those uh, discounts. Sometimes I give a little discount, you know, because I love you and I want you to come back. <laughs> so little discounts sometimes, but I don't do any more of those big sales like Health and Klein does. And I neither do those collections related to spring, summer, autumn. Besides that, I mean, like it helped me at least to have like a more stable set a profit from the social jewelry business because I don't have any more of those crazy sales. So it's a little bit more clear for me now, like the amount you get in every month, although it still obviously varies per season. But this thing was like so, yeah, important that when I was on the very first Nomad cruise in 2015 in December and I was giving my talk and I was sharing my experiences with the people over there, that a lot of people actually said to me, like, uh, how much does it actually cost to just support one of your social programs? Like, forget about the jewelry. I want to just support that kid to go to school. How much is it? Because that was the other problem I faced with my social business, besides that, yeah, people do crazy seals and all of that, which I stopped doing. People constantly were asking me, how much money from this necklace goes to that woman? How much money goes to you? How much money goes there? And, you know, like, I mean, I can tell you about one necklace, but every necklace is different because I sell one necklace to this store for that price, but then I sell a necklace to someone else, maybe for like a different price. And then sometimes necklaces break. Sometimes I have stock, which I don't sell. So it's super difficult to say. And also, the banking fees are high, PayPal costs are high, sending fees are high, import taxes are high. So a lot of people actually benefit from selling this necklace, not just me or my Ugandan artisans. Like a lot of people benefit. And I would say that myself, like because of my passive income stream, I really reinvested like everything like back into my social business because I want to grow and I want my women to um, become better. But that was also like something that I found was like an obstacle. And yeah, then it was quite interesting that people said to me, like, how much does it actually cost to just directly promote your social programs? Because initially I was against this whole donations and handing out things for free to people because I thought like, it's not like helping them, you know, to take uh, care of their belongings and to become self-responsible and in the end, self-sustainable. So initially I like didn't like the idea, but then I brainstormed with some people on the cruise. So that's also why, again, the Nomad Cruise is so important because it really broadens your perspective. You're not just speaking to lawyers or bankers or marketeers or MailChimp uh, specialists. You, you speak to so many different people and yeah, then I started my first GoFundMe campaign to finance the social programs directly without selling the jewelry. And I got in January to 2016 um, enough money to send the first 20 kids to school. 
And then I went back on a second cruise because actually the founder of the Nomad Cruise, also Johannes, he also said to me like, oh, Stella, this is so awesome that we can literally see what you have been doing with our money. Like you're so transparent about everything. And I'm like, yeah, why shouldn't I? You know, like I'm a one person business, I would say. Well, not one person. I mean, in the Netherlands, I'm registered as a one person. But of course, like in Uganda, I have the local people working for us. But me, myself, from the European side, I'm a one person. And um, yeah, so he said also, like, you really have to come back on the second Nomad cruise and share with people what you did in between those two cruises. So yeah, I got this knowledge from the first cruise. I immediately did something with it and I had a nice outcome. So I went on a second cruise, showed the people the impact. Then uh, I immediately had like people, uh, one of them is Bastian Barami from Office Flucht. He's also a digital nomad who said like, I want to come to Uganda and yeah, see firsthand the kid that I sponsored, see how to help you further. So that's what he did. And then this whole social vacations idea came up. So in terms of the foundation, I understand that the foundation runs an educational program, which based on the money that you've raised and your, your foundational contributors and sponsors make a recurring commitment. And so you're able to consistently uh, rely upon a recurring amount of income in the foundation and that you're currently running a five tiered program. So one is an educational program where you're sending over 300 kids to school, which the second one is a nutritional program where you're giving all those kids every single week a hot meal. The third one is that you're doing small business trainings and micro loan programs that are supporting at least 56 or more now families, some of whom are the parents of those kids. And you're running a development program to pay for things like medical fees, mattresses, water filters. And then the fifth piece is that you're running an after-school program, which gives kids extra classes and allows them to do extracurricular activities in addition to their schooling. And as your donations increase and you get more sponsors and more contributors to the foundation, you'll just simply be able to scale up those numbers. And one of the really cool things that I also, you know, that you also shared with me is that these people, as they go through the, you know, they might be artisans now that are making jewelry. And as you said, they're illiterate and all that stuff that as they go through these trainings, they're increasingly learning English. They're able to go back to school themselves in addition to their kids with the money that they're making from their business ventures, um, from the, using the micro loans to make more money with their businesses, send themselves back to school, learn English, learn business skills, and then actually move up to be local project managers for the company in addition to just being the artisans. Yeah, so it's a recurring model. So after the first cruise, I started a GoFundMe campaign, started sending kids to school. I was on a second cruise and I was like, oh shit, uh, yeah, I just raised 1,000 euros. I was able to send the kids to school, but uh, what am I going to do now? You know, I was like, should I do... I mean, of course, I had to do another GoFundMe campaign in order to, again, raise 1,000 euros because what, what what's going to happen with otherwise the kids, you know? So I was again on the second cruise, again, brainstorming with people like what to do now because soon the school term was going to end, the kids would go to the second term, um, what was the be best way to move forward? And actually already like before the cruise, I had like a few people who actually already said to me like, hey, um, yeah, we saw like that you put online the profiles of the kids who you started sending to school can be like, yeah, sponsor one specific one of them. And that's what I did because of course, like it's nice if you send kids to school for like a year, but then what? 
you know, than nothing. So I really, really encourage the sponsors and really make them realize that if they start sponsoring a child of turning to stars, it's a long-term commitment. For whoever this sounds too scary, like, don't worry. Like, of course, you know, you can always... Yeah, stop your sponsorship. Please let me know like at least like three months in advance so I have enough time to find a new sponsor. But we also run in, indeed those additional programs for which we also need donations. So if someone thinks it's too scary to commit long-term to a kid, please like sponsor one of our other additional programs. Because for us, it's way more difficult to find actually finances to run all those additional programs effectively because most people they also love to be attached to like a specific kid because it's again more tangible but that also made me realize like yeah i really need to make things tangible for people so i start like a lot of campaigns like you can finance for water filters or for mattresses or for this or for that and that really helps and then also with the long-term sponsors we charge them just tiny bit more money than the actual school fees and uniforms are so that actually with the money that they send for their kids we also are already able to give the kids a bit more than that to also give them the after school homework help what are the sponsorship levels what does it cost for someone to sponsor and what do they what does that give to the child you have kindergarten primary school and secondary school kindergarten is 180 euros a year Primary school is 240 euros a year and secondary school is 480 euros a year. So that comes down to 15, 20, 40 a month. However, the schools we're working with, they're all like really good schools, but you also have like better schools, you know, like it's always the case. So in this case, either the the sponsor could say, especially if a sponsor has been to Uganda, like, hey, I want my kid like to be in a really um, good international school or the community that we are helping, the parents could also say like, we want to top up and make sure that our kid goes to like an international school, which we allow because a lot of people always ask me like, Stella, we want to help the kid who needs it most. We want to help the kid who is the most poor of everyone. So we don't work like that. For us, community is everything. So we support girls and boys also all ages. So we don't stop at 18 because many kids, they only had a chance to go to primary school when they were already 9, 10, 11 years old. Like that's the case with the kids of Susan, our project manager. So they might will only finish secondary school when they're already in their 20s. But we still like support them and we want the whole community to work together. So if thanks to our business program, a family is able, you know, to scale up a bit. It's, it's not that they they are suddenly rich. They still live in the same quarter. But yeah, they maybe make a little bit more money than their neighbors do. But we don't want to punish them. We don't want to tell them like, oh, look, now you started making a bit more money. So your kid is going to be expelled from our program. Like, no, like we, we don't want to punish people for earning more money. We want to like encourage it. And if they say that, hey, we earn more money now, so our kids go to a bit better school, then that's great. In general, for the sponsorship, like, yeah, we include, like, the school fees, the uniforms, registration fee, development fee, uh, tours, things like that. And then we also finance by now to also pay our local project managers on the ground because all those people initially did everything voluntarily for us. So, because they 
themselves, like Susan, have, have such a big heart. Like they just wanted to see those kids in school. So she never, ever asked any money from us for going to the schools, paying the fees, sending us the reports, going to the houses, visit the kids, give us reports, updates. She never, ever asked me any money for that. But of course, now we grew to such a big number of kids that we obviously do start giving her and also our project management ginger compensation. And can you talk a little bit about also the co-workations, the social impact co-workations? And just for people to understand that workation is a merging of the two words, work and vacation into one word. So that's the word that we're using in case you didn't recognize the vocabulary, but a, a social impact co-workation to Uganda where you are actively now, I think it's three times a year you've got it up to where you're two times a year, twice a year, where you're bringing location-independent entrepreneurs and change makers and people that have contributed to the foundation. They can go whether or not they have, but some people have contributed and they want to meet the child that they're sponsoring or the family that they're impacting. And some people aren't necessarily sponsors of the foundation, but they want to go and participate and, and see Uganda. So talk a little bit about what the experience is like what type of person it's for and what happens on the co-workations that you're organizing? Yes. So as you know, I'm a digital nomad myself. And yeah, I decided to not live in Uganda because the Ugandans can do so many things so much better than I can. And I would never ever be able to get into their level because I don't speak the local language like they do. I'm not living in the community like they do. So a lot of tasks, I would say, like, I leave it to the local people because they do it 10 times better than I do. Yeah, so my job basically is, like, finding sponsors, finding people who like to buy the jewelry, bridging cultures, seeing, like, what is in, in Europe. But, of course, I also still need to go a lot of times to Uganda to also communicate with them on the ground, like, what do you guys actually really need? Because by times people would be shy and they don't want to tell me what they need because they don't want to seem ungrateful, for example, you know? So I think it's still really important for me to be in Uganda, but also not be in Uganda. And then I started realizing from the nomad cruises that uh, digital nomads, surprisingly, can work from anywhere. So I was like, hey, why don't they come to Uganda? And why don't they work from Uganda? And then I found out that a lot of people have wrong images and views of Uganda. And I would say one of the causes is unfortunately volunteers and this whole white savior complex, which I still find difficult to talk about sometimes because I'm white myself. You know, I have been seen by certain people also as a savior because they literally told me like, Stella, you saved my life. And I don't want them, you know, to put me in this category. But of course I know at the same time, just the fact that I'm white and I work in those communities, I'm also kind of like part of this white savior complex. But because of those people like coming to Uganda, only taking selfies, Instagram stories, and I don't know what about like poverty, people really got scared to go to Uganda or they would be like, Stella, do you guys have like drinking water? Do you have internet? You know, like I was like, uh, what are you talking about? You, of course I do, you know, like... Uganda, like you already mentioned in the beginning, has amazing nightclubs, restaurants, everything. And yeah, a lot of people didn't know. So I was a bit sad about it. I was like, this has to change. Like 
people should realize that you don't only can go to Cape Town or Barcelona or Bangkok or Medellin for working. You can also come to Kampala or Jinja and you can also work from there on your laptop. It's an amazing, beautiful country. We do have internet. We do have electricity, all of this. So this idea came up then, um, yeah, after Bastian visited me in Uganda. So he's like uh, the nomad guy. He came to Uganda and then many people responded, we also want to come. So this was about two years ago. And since then I've organized six social impact vacations. So these vacations are for digital nomads, location independent entrepreneurs who can take their laptop with them, work on their own things, but at the same time want to co-work, co-live with other people so that they don't get this experience that I had being all alone in Kampala. And unfortunately, up till today, it's not that there is a big community of digital nomads in Kampala. So if you come to Kampala, you don't immediately find them, you know? So... I kind of like wanted to start organizing this that myself, that when I'm in Kampala, I can share my experiences. I don't feel lonely anymore. And at the same time, I also really, yeah, start showing people that Kampala and Uganda is a super beautiful, fun country. So the people, they come on a co-working vacation with me, co-working, co-living and a safari trip. And of course, they also want to give back, you know, to the projects they visit because yeah, after all, it's not that I'm just organizing vacations. I, I run like um, social programs in Uganda. And I saw myself that it was super helpful for me to connect with digital nomads because they really uplifted my business, uh, my private life, their inspirational, everything. So they come to Uganda to do like skill sharing and to actually train our uh, managers. So not to just, you know, come over there, do something, and then they leave and people cannot continue. Like, no, they really leave valuable things behind. And a lot of things they actually can do is remote work. So currently I have like um, a few volunteers from my previous vacations. They're also nomad cruisers. Uh, For example, Stefan Fuchs, he's one of them. And he's doing like automatization project for me to automatize all our things. But you don't have to do this in Uganda. You can do it from anywhere. So regarding volunteering, yeah, do you have to come to Uganda to volunteer or can you do it from home? Because unfortunately, I saw a lot of people coming to Uganda to volunteer because everyone back home would give them 200 likes and say like, amazing job. But that's not necessary. We have like amazing local people. And I learned a lot from them. And not just me, also my vacation participants exchange skills was so beautiful. For example, we do those those mastermind sessions and they're not just about your business life, but also about your personal life, you know, but this whole like environment of speaking with different cultures who have different standards makes yourself also like being way more open about what you do yourself. And I think if we would have had this mastermind sessions among us Europeans, no one would ever answer those questions in such an honest way because we're always afraid like how do other people see us how, what would other people see how would they judge us and i think in uganda it's like really interesting to have this really honest open dialogue about how we look at things so we can really learn from each other what to do what not to do but also to speak out about things 
and not be scared, you know, that people judge us. Can you talk a little bit about, like, if you were to distill down some of the principles, you mentioned the sort of white savior complex and, you know, some of the ways that certain Western people may approach or think about volunteering or think about engaging with communities in places like Uganda. Can you talk a little bit about the ethics of what you think is important about engaging with communities there in a way that is in a empowering sort of solidarity framework as opposed to a patronizing, you know, charitable type of power imbalance framework? And what should people be conscientious and aware of when engaging with communities in Uganda or as we travel the world in general? What are your thoughts on that? I would say, first of all, probably like people don't need you. Um, I see a lot of times that people make themselves the center, you know, like it's more about themselves than about like the community they visit. And I would say like just first like stop going to countries thinking that they do need your help or whatever they need. They don't, you know, like people in Uganda, like I already mentioned, they also help each other. Like David and Ida, they are Ugandans and they already started like helping out Susan. Of course, you know, they could only help like to a certain point because they needed to find international markets. So that's where I could step in and where I could help them. But it's not, you know, that people have to go somewhere to help people. And I think that's just the biggest mistake that a lot of people make. I agree entirely. I think it's really important. And I want to actually step back and ask you a little bit more of some macro questions. You've been traveling now for eight years and you have been to over 60 countries, over 20 of them in Africa, which obviously has a very special place in your heart. And I want to just ask you a little bit to speak about that. And I guess I want to pose the question to start off with the first question at the most macro level is why do you travel? Why potentially should other people travel? What is the value of travel? As you said, there's beautiful places to see in the Netherlands. It's a gorgeous country. There's plenty of social injustice and poverty and, and, and issues that need to be you know dealt with in the Netherlands. There's, all that stuff is also in the Netherlands, as it is in the United States where I'm from, as it is in every country. So, But talk a little bit about why travel? What do you get from it? Why do you travel and why should other people probably do some traveling as well. This is like a super subjective individual question. So I definitely cannot say this is for others. So it's just my own unique experience. So in my case, I would say that while traveling, I got confronted a lot with myself because strangers are sometimes more honest with you than friends because friends are sometimes not that critical or they don't dare to tell you in your face what they don't like about you because they're afraid of losing you. But if you meet strangers while you're travel, they don't give a damn if you don't want to talk to them anymore. But they are way more honest and confronting you. So that's something that I realized while traveling, which I found extremely interesting and also powerful because it helped me a lot in my own self-development. Then, for example, with Uganda in particular, what I found very interesting was um, how the community works and how people help and love each other and then their family. That also really made me realize that I should, yeah, invest way more time into my own family as well. 
That's really powerful. So what would you, maybe could you share some of your travel stories? I know you've traveled extensively and you've done a lot of solo traveling. And you and I have been sharing travel stories. We've been in Barcelona together for a couple of weeks now and have been hanging out and sharing travel stories and stuff. And one of the ones that stood out to me that I, I wanted to ask if you could share is the story about how you use Tinder when you were traveling alone through Africa a few years ago and what came of that. Because I thought that, that really stood out to me. Can you share that story? Yes, of course. So yeah, like I loved Tinder. Right now, not anymore because I have like boyfriends. I use Tinder as no mating, no dating. That literally, <laughs> you're laughing. That's amazing. That's amazing. And your profile literally, but when yes. you were single, I mean, this is yes. important context yes, for the yes. story. I, I used to be single, yeah. When you were single and you're using Tinder, your profile said no mating, no dating. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So go ahead and talk, talk about what you did use it for then. Exactly, because, you know, like I love like honesty and I was like, okay, I don't want like a guy to fall in love with me. Or of course, like probably just spending one fun night with me. But like, yeah, I, I don't want like, you know, that people like would be like, oh my God, amazing. She's over here. I want to meet her and have crazy ideas because I was like, yeah, no, like I'm here maybe for like only a day or two. So what's the point? So I wanted to be like upfront, clear and honest to people. Uh, and of course I was single. So of course, like, you know, if I would like meet people that I really had a click with, who knows what happens, but in general, I swiped right on a lot of people that I was initially not attracted to, but that actually turned out to be amazing people. Also, I read the profiles because of the things they were doing. Yeah, so I met, for example, when I was in, in Mali, in uh, Bamako, I was together with a girl and we were constantly stuck in our backpacker hostel, which was not like a backpacker hostel. It was Bamako of all places. So it was full of policemen and soldiers and United Nations people. Yeah, Mali was not the safest place on earth. So there were no tourists and we couldn't really go out at night partying. So in my case, like we were like in this uh, hotel for quite some time because we were waiting for our visa approvals of the other countries. And I started to get a bit bored. And I was like saying to my friend, like, hey, let, let's... And Vine, just like, you know, some guys from Tinder, like we will be honest about it and tell them, yeah, that they just can come all together. And my friend was first looking at me like, this is a weird idea. You know, I was like, well, why is it weird? I mean, what worse can happen of another boring night over here? So I invited those guys and it was amazing. Like we had so nice conversations. And then actually after I left the country, those guys started hanging out with each other because they met during that night out. That was not my only experience. Like I have like many of those stories all over Africa, but a lot also in Uganda. Like I met like a lot of guys in Kampala through Tinder who got actually engaged with my project, we even made like short movies for my project, everything. I would say that in, in, yeah, in the African continent, you obviously have by times less people on Tinder because I went to remote places. So in 10 minutes, I would literally swipe through everyone. It's not like Amsterdam, you know, where you have like tons of people on there. And I sometimes had a feeling that just the fact that that person was in the same place as me why the heck are you in this remote place? Like there must be already probably like an interesting story behind it in the first place that you are here. So I want to meet you, you know? 
yeah, of course you can say, why don't, don't you use intonations or some of the expat forums? Well, my answer to that, it's just too slow. You know, if I start posting something in a forum, I have to wait so people reply and it's just too slow. And nowadays the, our life is fast. So that was just the fastest way for me to immediately get like responses of people and get meetups. And you're still connected with some of these people and some of them are still even involved in your, your work that you're doing. Yes. Uh, yeah. So like I already mentioned, like one of the guys from Tinder, like he made like um, a video for my organization and yeah, the other guys, like I'm not like directly involved anymore with, but they like some of them, they do sponsor children of my foundation because they like visited our project. So um, yeah. And you, and you even opened up your, your Tinder profile to men and women and made female friends on there as well. So this was actually a really, really interesting aspect, but I did meet uh, also with women in Uganda and also outside of Uganda, also in the other countries. Yeah, like I mentioned, like in Burkina Faso, one of the girls that I met there, yeah, also became like a big supporter of our organization, but not just that, like also like, yeah, friends-wise, I would say she really helped me a lot over there. Yeah. Let me ask you one more question, and then I want to move into the lightning round here and wrap this up. How do you deal with stress and how do you organize your your time and your life as you're moving through time zones and that kind of stuff to optimize your productivity and get things done, but also manage the stress that comes typically with entrepreneurship and all of that? So regarding the stress part, um, I used to be very stressed with everything because I had very high standards set for myself. I was extremely career orientated and I just completely changed that aspect. So everything that I'm doing is only for myself. And a lot of people ask me about numbers. How many braces did you sell? How many necklaces? How many this? How many that? And for me, that has been so unimportant. Because when I started this journey of starting turning to stars and stopping whatever I was doing, the most important thing was to really find peace and happiness with myself. Like I already mentioned before, throughout my youth, a struggle was my situation with my family. I really wanted to be more connected to my mom, but also to my dad. And yeah, just have more peace in this relationship. And that's what I found. And I found it through being a digital nomad and through setting my own times when I'm working. And I said no to a lot of partnerships because of this, because people like started like offering me things like, yeah, we can work together, but then I want monthly reports or I want this or that from you. And I was like, no, you know, like I'm not just doing whatever I'm doing to like sell thousands of bracelets or to like uh, sponsor thousands of kids. Obviously I do want at one point that I reach this. However, it, it should be at one point. Like I like to take things slow and on the way, learn and adjust before I would make a big mistake. And if you take little steps, I take a lot of steps forwards, but I sometimes take a little step backwards. But because I always take little risks and little steps, I'm moving forward like slowly, but I also move forward together with my Ugandan people also in their pace. So I really try to not take things too fast take it like step by step. And that's how I deal with stress because I would say that in, in general, I don't really have that much stress because I'm not 
responsible. Um, yeah, I, okay, I am responsible, obviously, like for my project and for my kids, but I know that all of that I calculated and that's all protected. Like I know that even if some sponsors would fall out, even if some money would drop, like I made obviously some uh, secure places in my organization that I always know we have something to fall back to. So I would say that everything what I'm doing is somehow protected. I also have my own falling nets with having my property that even if something would like go wrong, I would still have this yeah, net I could fall into. Uh, so I, I literally don't have that much stress and I just try to avoid it by taking things slow, step by step. I get a lot of questions from people, women in particular, about solo travel. And for female solo travelers, you have traveled by yourself through a lot of the world, including a lot of parts of the world that would have high security warnings associated with those countries. Can you talk a little bit about any advice that you would have for women that are considering long-term solo traveling endeavors and what types of security precautions or other types of, you know, planning they should do for a long-term female solo travel experience? I would say that in general, like, as you already know, like I'm not someone who's planning that much ahead and all of that. But if I look back at it, like, of course, sometimes I would have thought like, okay, maybe I should have had like a smartphone with me because I traveled quite a lot without a phone, which was also quite enlightening for me. Uh, but I would say in the end, it doesn't matter how much pre-research you do or pre-arranging things. Like it's all about the, mo the moment. So for example, like what I usually do is if I travel solo is really avoid alcohol like that's actually one of my number one rules when I traveled like I would maybe have one wine but I would definitely like not drink a whole bottle or more than that or you know so really stay super aware of your surroundings like I already mentioned to you like I would have like four eyes in my head like all around you know so just always following my intuition because unfortunately, you cannot always rely on a smartphone. Like, I mean, I traveled without a smartphone, but even if I would have had a smartphone, a smartphone can run out of battery. So what would, I, would it help me? Nothing. So you should not like prepare that much beforehand, but you should be ready in the moment. So as I already mentioned also to you, like I read this very inspiring book, uh, Power of Now from Eckhart Tolle, during my 42-hour bus drive from Zimbabwe to Tanzania. And I, it yeah, made me again aware of how much you should really be present because a lot of potential danger, you can just see it. You know, if you just open your eyes, you can see if something feels uncomfortable or if you get scared of something. So just really throw that smartphone away or even though I sometimes wished I would have had it with me, you know, like it's still like good to like not look too much into it. Like, I mean, today, for example, like we almost missed each other in this cafe because I was actually looking at my smartphone, typing some stuff and I was not even aware that you were passing me. So if you're really aware of your surroundings, then you really know what's going on. It's good advice. All right, Stella, are you ready for the lightning round? 
lightning round. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the last decade that you would most recommend to people? Yes, it's definitely The Power of Now. And the most funny thing is that I did not want to read it. I thought it was boring. And I was like, do I really have to read this? You know, so I was in in um, Zimbabwe and I was going to a bus station and I asked when the next bus would leave. And they told me literally like, yeah, it's leaving in like 10 hours. And it was already 7 p.m. So I couldn't buy it. Another book to read. I didn't have my smartphone with me because I left it somewhere by accident. So yeah, I had like nothing. And then I went to my hotel. I asked them if I can buy a book from them because I saw a whole library with books. And they were like, no, you need to exchange a book. So for a second, I was even like thinking, should I exchange this book for it? Because I thought it was super boring anyway. But then it was a gift from a friend. So I also had a feeling like, no, I cannot like exchange a book that I just got as a gift. So I have to keep it. I asked them if I could buy another book. I couldn't. So I had only one book with me. I was on this bus trip, which is like a whole story by itself. And I had to read this book two times even. And yes, definitely read it. I mean, a lot of stuff obviously also was new for me, but a lot of stuff was also affirming what I was already doing naturally, which is also sometimes nice to just read something that shows you again that what you're doing is, is it's a good thing. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you would recommend? Um, yeah, so I guess it's a common one. It's like Slack. So uh, I love Slack because it has all those different channels and uh, it's quite organized. If you could have dinner with one celebrity or author or public figure, someone who's currently living now, anyone in the world, who would it be? Yeah, Matt already asked me these questions hours ago. And to be honest, like I still don't have an answer to it. Like I went like on Google and I Googled all those people. And yeah, like, sorry, like I never ever had anything with famous people, celebrities, all of that. Like I really love meeting real people. And I think that a lot of real stories are not enough highlighted because people don't have the marketing budget to promote themselves or whatever reason it is. So I personally would not like to pick any celebrity. I would really love to pick like like a real person who is inspiring, empowering, who overcame challenges, uh, someone, for example, like Susan is my project manager who really like fights for the future, for herself, for her kids, and just never, ever stops and really does things and doesn't sit back home being lazy and waiting for something to happen. I like people taking action. Knowing everything that you know now with all of your life experience, looking back, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Yeah, so my advice would definitely be like, be confident and really find your own why. Because I had the feeling that for a way too long time, I had the voices of my parents inside my head and my community, my friends, everyone saying, you have to go into this direction and changing the field, finding my tribe, like the tribe on Hermit Cruise, that's one of my tribes, finding my tribe really helped me to be surrounded with people who actually 
really uplift me and inspire me and encourage me and motivate me. And I was way too long with people thinking in a different direction than I do, which is not wrong. Like there's nothing wrong about it, but you really need to look into yourself. What do you want? And then find people who agree with what you want and don't hang around with people who go into a different direction. What are your top three travel destinations that you've ever been to that you would love to go back and spend more time and that you'd most recommend that other people visit? Uganda. Yes, I love Uganda. So I definitely would always like go back there over and over and over again. It's the most friendly people on the planet and it has beautiful nature, everything. So Uganda is number one. Number two and number three is very difficult, I would say, because I love a lot of places. I would say actually for me, one of the places was Beijing, China. I would love to go back. And it's actually quite funny because on the first side, you, I, I at least thought that Beijing was polluted and ugly and dirty and not nice. But I would say Beijing is one of those cities who hide something. So it's not that obvious in your face that you take the plane, you arrive and you're in paradise. No, you need to look for it. But that's also the charm that you do need to make some effort. But then if you find the nice places, the nice people, the hidden gems, then it is paradise. So China, Beijing is second. And then third, I would say Cape Town. It's so obvious. It's like, yeah, everyone always says it, but I love the nature, everything that it has. Yeah. What are your top three bucket list destinations, places you've never been that are at the top of your list that you most want to go? Yeah, so that's also a good one. So 10 years ago, when I did my around the world travels, I already made a little bucket list of places where I really wanted to go to, where people told me that those places probably within 10 years would not be anymore that nice. So there was Galapagos Islands, Great Barrier Reef in Australia, some more places like that. And I went already to them. So I sometimes feel a little bit spoiled because I've been already to so many amazing places. So now if I have to choose the place that I really would love to go that I have not been to, oh my gosh, it's a ton. But to start, I would say Japan really interests me a lot. When I was in China, I wanted to go to Japan, but I had a single visa for China. So I couldn't go from China to Japan. Otherwise, I would not have been able to go back to the country. So that's also like a thing you really have to be aware of, like our visas. Like, I mean, I myself, I'm in such a privileged situation because of my visa. And I sometimes also feel guilty bad about it because I'm surrounded with a lot of people who don't have my visa situation. So indeed, I can literally say any country I want and visa-wise, I know that I probably could make it happen to go there. But I'm also aware of many people who can't. So ah, it's always difficult to say where I want to go. I like surprises. I want to be surprised. And how can I surprise myself if I'm going to now already tell the destination? But to just say something, I would say... Japan, India, Indonesia. Those are all three places that I have gone to for the first time in the last two years. I went to India twice last year. Went to Bali very briefly. Would love to go back and spend more time. And then this past year, I've spent three months in Japan, which is totally amazing. So Tokyo, 
Osaka and Kyoto were each a one month base for me in Japan this year. And they were truly amazing. So I think those are some really, really good destinations. Let me ask you one final question here in the lightning round, and then we'll tell people where they can find you and all the amazing stuff you're involved with. I want to ask you about the digital nomad ecosystem and its evolution. You've been a world traveler now for a decade. You've been full-time nomading for many years, and you've seen the ecosystem evolve. As you just mentioned, the term that you've found your tribe or tribes, plural, in, in multiple senses of that. How do you, if you can talk a little bit about what it means to you to be a digital nomad, how that lifestyle works for you, and how you see the nomad ecosystem evolving into the future, if you can share that. Yeah, so that's an interesting question because I don't know, actually, like even though I am a digital nomad since 10 years, I'm not a specialist. I never looked into this topic. Uh, I just know from my environment that I obviously do see it growing. I see, yeah, quite some people who also want to travel more or not even travel more. A lot of my friends, people, they want to still have their home base, which I think it's quite important to have as well. Uh, so they don't want to become nomadic. So digital nomad is obviously, yeah, a term that involves a lot of things. So I would say people definitely want to have the option and opportunity more work from home. It doesn't have to be like being self-employed or have your own business. It can be like working for a company. But I definitely think that also companies of the future should take into account that people love to work one or two days a week from home and perhaps also reconsider this whole model of this nine to five, five days a week job. Like, yeah, be more flexible. All right. Stella, how can people find you? Now, we're going to put all of the links to everything in the show notes, but just verbally here, um, how can people find out more about you, about what you're doing, follow you on social media, get involved with your programs or learn more about them if they want to? Where do they go? Stella Romana Eroli, that's my name. Um, I guess if you Google it, you already find like a lot of me. So you can just Google it and then follow it. Of course, like on, on Facebook, it's my name. If you follow my name, you find 22 stars, everything. The same for Instagram. Same my email address, Stella underscore Iroldi at hotmail.com. I think I'm very easy to Google because there are not many people with my name. Okay. And we're going to put all of this in the show notes. So you don't have to remember that. You can just go to the maverickshow.com show notes and we're going to have all of these links there for you so you can just click on them but if people want to what are the opportunities for people to get involved with what you're doing if they want to go on a co-workation or they want to learn more about that what what are the options for people yeah so people should just like literally write me because i'm like quite flexible and i'm open for everything so just contact me and we can discover together what the options are because i have tons of options for people to get involved. For example, you can get involved remotely, uh, do, for example, content writing for us, translations, become like a wholesaler, affiliate partner, like you will do, um, buy our jewelry through that. You become, you can even become like a designer, you become a photographer. You can also just follow us, share our stories. You become a long-term sponsor of a kid. You can definitely come to Uganda, visit us over there, just contact me 
and I look at you as a person specifically because I don't like those packages where people say this works because I would say we are all individuals and everyone has his own skills and unique features and I look more like case to case, to case how someone can get involved. Right, and they can also buy the jewelry which every piece of jewelry that they buy also benefits all of these causes as well. So we will put links to all of this stuff in the show notes. So just go to the maverickshow.com and you will see links to every single one of these things that we're talking about. You can check out the websites and you can contact Stella directly there. Stella, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks a lot. It was super exciting to be over here. Awesome. Well, we will uh, keep everyone posted on how the Nomad Cruise goes for us. We're about to embark from Barcelona and go to Brazil and have some more adventures. But thank you, everybody, for joining. Definitely be sure to check out Stella's stuff. I'm rocking one of her bracelets right now, and they're really, really awesome. So check it out in the show notes. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.